Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, nice to see all of you, and I uh, want to say on behalf of Mary Ann and I just thank you for praying for us as we had our whirlwind trip through England and Italy and France, and uh, we were at the C.S. Lewis Conference uh, Summer Institute at Oxford, which was um, very good, and we enjoyed our time, and then we were over in Italy and Sicily. We have family there. We have a nephew who is a dentist in the Navy, and uh, so we were with them and their four kids riding around in a van. I was in the back of the van with the little ones. I told more stories in the back of that van <laughs> for a few days, so that was a, a lot of fun. And then uh, we had four days in Menton, France, where I've always wanted to go. That's where Spurgeon uh, would go to recover in the winter. And uh, that's where he actually died. And so we were able to finally get there. That was on one of my bucket list places to go since we were over there. I said, it's just a short flight. And so we, uh, we got a little bit of time there together. So that was a blessing. And I am uh, sure thankful that when I'm away... We have good preachers and teachers here at Waterbrook. It's just really easy for me to go and know John and Gabe and when Andy's around, um, just very quality uh, Bible teachers. And so I thank them. Um, uh, Andy and Kristen are flying today to Nashville. They're going down to the Gettys Sing Conference, so pray for them. I'm praying that they get some good rest over the next uh, few days as they are down there. And uh, Gabe uh, is taking a well-deserved weekend off uh, after having served and covered. And uh, so I want to, if he's watching, thank him uh, for serving well along the team. And, uh, and John is sick. And so uh, he began to fade at the end of the week. And so I think Chelsea's feeling a little unwell as well. So I'd encourage you to keep them in prayer. But I, w- I do want to thank all of them. Uh, for making it easy for me to be away and know the sheep are being cared for. Let me um, give you a couple of prayer requests before we study the word together. So last night, two of our children were taken in by ambulance, separate, not knowing each other, to Children's Hospital. Um, So Matthias Swanson um, was taken in. His O2 levels dropped and they were not able to control them and they were not able to figure out what it was and I haven't heard this morning how he is so he was taken in and then Tate DeBoer um, uh, got taken in and at 10:30 this morning so less than an hour from now they're taking out his appendix and um, so they had to rush him down there so I'm going to ask you to join me as we pray for these uh, young boys and their moms and dads so let's Let's pray together. So, Father, as we gather here in the comfort of this place um, to worship, we are mindful, Heavenly Father, that um, the uh, families that um, are in Children's Hospital right now are are, uh, looking to you. We thank you for the doctors and nurses and the care they're getting. We pray, uh, we pray, dear God, help uh, Matthias find out what's going on. Help the doctors uh, protect him, heal him in Jesus' name. And we pray for Tate, heal him as well, be with his family. And as he has his appendix removed, uh, just watch over him um, and uh, help him to have a good recovery. So we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I want to begin looking at this text of Scripture by inviting you to look at one phrase in one verse this morning, and then we'll kind of backtrack and and look at this text a little more widely. But look at verse 22 of uh, Luke chapter 13. Um, Luke 13, verse 22. Uh, Jesus is 
finishing this part of his ministry where he is going to give the parables of the kingdom. And in verse 22 it says, he went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And I underlined those words, journeying toward Jerusalem, in my Bible. And I want you to pause and think about that this morning. Are you not glad those words exist in the Bible? That Jesus is decisively going to Jerusalem. That despite the harassment he is now getting, you know, he was in the synagogue, heals somebody, and they are accusing him of breaking the Sabbath law. The opposition, the ridicule, the insults, the hostilities, the behind the scenes plotting that is now going on will continue to ratchet up. But Jesus is singularly going to Jerusalem. And you and I ought to stop this morning and go, thank you, Jesus, that you didn't quit because you were insulted. You didn't get distracted because you were falsely accused, because somebody misrepresented you or slandered. Because if it was me, I would have packed it in. I would have said, forget it. I would have walked away. But Jesus journeyed towards Jerusalem. And that's how Luke wants you to hear this. This is on the way to Calvary. And I want to just pause and say, some of you, all you need to hear this morning is this. You just need to stop and think about this this morning. Do you think the one who didn't avoid the cross will abandon you now? Do you think the one who went against the headwinds of his own people, the misrepresentations of his intentions. He journeyed towards Jerusalem. What was he doing? What was on his heart? What was in his mind? I can tell you really simply, we were on his mind. And he was resolved to go there. And I think this is a good text of Scripture to look at this morning and to consider together as we go into September. It's Labor Day weekend. You all feel it. The mornings are beautifully cool now. You can just throw the windows open. You don't need the air conditioning in the morning. And it's, it's, it's lovely in the morning and it's changing, but we have this impending reality, right? And some of you know, some of you are already back to school. Some of you have started homeschooling. Our ministries are beginning to ramp up. We're starting women's ministry. We're doing this building expansion plan. We have um, children's ministry beginning to be planned. And as we're working at all of these things going on, I think for some of us, we can actually have this little voice in the back of our heads going, where was summer? And was there any rest? And do I want to do this? Do you ever have that where you're just going, uh, can we just press the pause button? I don't feel ready for this. And not only that, that's just normal life. Add to it The fact that problems weren't removed over the summer, that the curse has not yet been finally removed from creation. And honestly, it's it's hard sometimes to get yourself engaged in the ministry. Because in Luke, Luke is calling us to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We've used the phrase, the cruciform life. And sometimes we're just going, I've, I've had enough of journeying. I'm, I'm exhausted with what's going on. I, I, I can't see my mission because I can't even see how I'm going to get through next week. Right? I don't know if I'm the only one who feels that way, but sometimes it's like that. The other night, you know, we did three weeks in Europe, uh, and I didn't drive at all. And so we were just bussing it and, and uh, catching trains and a, a few little planes here and there. And we got there on these cheap airlines, you know, that you can go in Europe back and forth. And I, so I came back to Minnesota and I started driving and I forgot about bugs. And so I'm, I'm, I'm driving down the road and there's like, it sounds like it's raining or something. It was in the evening. And, and then I realized, well, like I can, I'm beginning not to be able to see through my windshield. And then you have that decision to make, right? Do I use the washer fluid or not? Because you know, there's like this period of time where you go from bad to worse. And so, but at some point in time, you think, I got to use the washer fluid. So you hit the washer fluid, and I did it the other night. I hit the washer fluid, made smudge city, smear city with the bugs on the windshield, just as I rounded a corner on Highway 10, and the setting sun hit the windshield. I could see nothing. I could see nothing. I made it worse, not better. 
And so I like hit, hit it again, hit it again, you know, emptied the windshield washer fluid, got it off like that, it dried, got in some shade, cleared off, and I was good to go. But there are moments in our lives where it all just looks like the bugs smeared and smudged and the light in our eyes, and I can't see how I'm going to get to the next stage. We feel vulnerable, we feel dangerous, we feel out of focus. And God is calling us to take up our cross and follow him. And what I want you to see this morning in this passage of Scripture is that in, in this section of Scripture, we can learn uh, from Jesus that Jesus sees things that we don't see. That gives him the ability to focus on his calling on our behalf so that one, we can look at this and take heart that he is this way, but we also can take up our cross and follow him if we can see what he sees. And I'm going to show you three things in this text of scripture that he says about the kingdom of God. Jesus has clarity because he can see the present situation in light of the grand narrative, the big story the kingdom of God. And he has three things in the kingdom of God that he has clearly in view. And because he can see the big story against the little stories of opposition and betrayal and disappointment, because he can see the grand story of the kingdom of God, he's able to persevere. And because of that, if we can see it, we can look to him and trust in him, rely on him, and follow him. So here are the three things I want you to see this morning. The first thing is the kingdom of God is surprisingly invasive. Hear me, it is surprisingly invasive. Secondly, Jesus knows that the kingdom of God is soberingly exclusive. Soberingly exclusive. And then finally, what I want you to see is the kingdom of God is eternally glorious, eternally glorious. And as Jesus is speaking and teaching here, what's coming out of him is what he knows about the kingdom of God. Here's the other thing I want to say, just as an aside quickly. One of the things that you and I can do sometimes when we watch and hear Jesus is we can forget that he's a man. And that he is functioning as a God, the God-man, but he is functioning as the one who took on our humanity. And in his humanity, he's facing all the things that we're facing. He's tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so it could be pretty easy for us to look Jesus at Jesus making his journey in the Gospel of Luke and think, what Jesus is doing here is possible because he's God. But what you and I need to see in this text is he's journeying as a man who has come to do the will of his father on our behalf. He has powers and abilities that are granted to him as the Messiah. But what he sees and believes is available for us to see and believe in him. And so let's not quickly dismiss Jesus' experience or put ourselves in that little situation where we think to ourselves, yeah, but I'm the exception to the rule. And so if I was Jesus, I'd handle this. Well, of course you would. But A, Jesus lives in you. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. And Jesus is, is the Bible says he's the forerunner, which means he's blazing the trail and showing us the way so that we might know where to go. So let's begin with this first truth in verses 18 to 21. The kingdom of God is surprisingly invasive. Now, I, this is what I want you to see here. I think what Jesus is doing is he's actually provoking his audience a little bit because he is using language, he's using parables purposefully. Uh, if, if you look at verse 18 in chapter 3, it says, he said, therefore. He said, therefore. And you stop and think, okay, why does it say therefore? It means it's still connected to the previous passage. And so Jesus has faced these accusations about his ministry in the synagogue. And therefore, he tells this parable, these parables. And so they're, they're coming at him and saying he's compromising He's, 
He's breaking the law. He's acting unrighteously. He's doing what he ought not to do. And Jesus responds to those accusations with a couple of parables. Because what, you know, the criticism primarily that's coming against Jesus is that Jesus is gathering around him women, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners. He's bringing the outsiders, the outcasts, the leaven of society in. And I, it's, it's how I hear Jesus telling the parable. This leaven is going to turn the world upside down. You and I just need to pause and realize, because he knows. Jesus knows that when he gives a parable, he is trying to spin something in their heads. He is seeking in the power of God to open their eyes. Sometimes because we're not culturally involved as much in the text, we don't realize how it would land on their ears. But it, it lands within intention. So Kevin Van Hooser reminds us what a parable is. A parable is an extended metaphor. He says, like the kingdom of God is like, a met, it's a, met, a metaphorical narrative, a story in which something extraordinary happens that subverts the ordinary way people think about things. So he's trying to get them to think differently. He's trying to provoke a response so that the people could hear him. i just tell you a little side. I was in Oxford a couple of weeks ago at University Church. I'm sitting in worship. I'm listening to this session. I've been, I, one of the books I was reading on sabbatical was Kevin Van Hooser's Hearer and Do, Hearers and Doers. Excellent book. I was liking it. That's where I got the quote from. I'm sitting there reading it, and the service ends, and there's a 16-year-old girl sitting down from Marianne and I. She gets up and comes and introduces herself. She says, hi, my name's Emma. I, I look at her and say, hi, my name's Kevin. She goes, oh, my dad's name is Kevin. I look down at her name, Emma, Emma Van Hooser. <laughs> and I've got... Oh, I'm reading your dad's book right now. <laughs> I said, is he the Kevin Van Hooser? She goes, yes. <laughs> so it's just kind of one of these funny. But Van Hooser in this book, Hearers and Doers, says we have to be able to read. The, we, we, we are constantly, you in the culture, me in this culture, we're constantly getting a story given to us about how success is found, how happiness is found, where meaning is found, and Jesus has to shock us out of it. The parables have to interrupt the way we think. And so he does it in a way that would catch their attention. So he tells about two remarkable scenarios, two parables about this kingdom of God that they are finding offensive. He says, what's the kingdom of God like? He says, I will compare it, he says, to a grain of mustard seed that, is, that, uh, that, is took, that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. Now, he uses the parable of the mustard seed, not because that's what normally happens. It's because it doesn't normally happen. Now, in a sense, the mustard seed was planted, and it was one of the smallest seeds that could be planted. But what Jesus isn't saying is that this, this is a normal mustard seed that grows up into a tree. There's a lot of commentators that kind of work their way trying to explain it. Jesus is saying this is the miraculous mustard seed that grows in such a way that when it comes up, rather than being the plant that it normally is, which is a brittle, hollowed branch uh, plant, it becomes a great tree such that the birds of the air nest in it. And even in Jewish culture, the birds of the air sometimes symbolize, e symbolize evil. But what Jesus is saying is this kingdom of God is so great that, uh, that it's like a mustard seed that is planted, and when it grows, the birds will come and land. Yeah, like Pharisees and tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Isn't that good news? That's how great it is. Uh, there's another explanation of this that I think is helpful, and um, David Garland explains the, the mustard plant. He says, the mustard plant is a bush that's mostly hollow and will hardly provide suitable nesting places for birds. But then he quotes, uh, I can't remember if it was Pliny the Younger or Pliny the Elder, but one of the Plinies in, in Greek, he, he quotes him who talks about the mustard plant. And listen to how he says it. The mustard plant's entirely wild, though improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, when it's sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it. You ever planted raspberries? 
You know, if you plant raspberries after a while, or you plant asparagus, you plant it for a while, once you get it in there, it starts to spread everywhere. What Pliny the Elder said is the mustard plant is, you know, you plant it, it looks fragile, but once that thing takes root, watch out, you'll have a hard time getting rid of it. That's what the kingdom of God is like. You just need to stop and think about that this morning. Because if you're, if you're, if you're planning Sunday school, and so, if you've taught Sunday school, or you're doing youth ministry, there are some weeks going on thinking, I don't know if I made any sense, and I don't know if anybody heard a thing I said. Right? If you're homeschooling, or if you're a young person, and you're going to school, and you're one of the only Christians in your college or in your class, or it could be in your family, and you're thinking, man, I'm trying to make a difference here. Jesus is saying the thing that keeps him going is not that he's being harassed and bombarded by opposition. It's what he knows about the kingdom of God and the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that gospel begins to work. You take a little group of people and put them in City Hall in Victoria, Minnesota, and get some roots down, and you watch what God is able to do. That's what the kingdom of God is like. Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You plant it in the ground, and before you know it, it's big enough, spread enough, strong enough, invasive enough. Do you believe that about the gospel? Do you believe that about the kingdom of God? Do you believe that about the church of Christ? Secondly, he uses the parable of the leaven. Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, verse 20, he says, this little short parable, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, listen to Tom Schreiner in his commentary. He says, leaven is typically used in the Bible, in Scripture, as a corrupting influence. And he lists Exodus 12.14, Leviticus 2.11, Leviticus 6.17, Deuteronomy 6.14, Luke 12.1, 1 Corinthians 15.6.8, Galatians 5.9. He says, but here, Jesus uses it in a positive way, as the context makes clear. Three measures are about a bushel of flour. It's a a huge amount. And then he says, the kingdom is like leaven in the flour. And the key word uh, he says here is hid. So you, you plant the kingdom of God into the world and you can hardly see it. It's like a woman planting leaven in it. And all of a sudden, the flour begins to what? Expand. What, what's Jesus knowing? Even in his earthly life, you know, get to the book of Acts. After Christ is crucified and, and is risen and ascended, there's only a, 120 disciples. You start to think, is it worth it? Is that all there is? In fact, in the next section, in this chapter, the section we're reading, somebody will say to Jesus, are only a few going to be saved? Have you ever thought that? Is there only going to a few be saved? And what Jesus is saying is, you don't know the kingdom of God. And you see, this, this is when we watch Jesus making his way towards Jerusalem. He's not on a fool's errand. He's not defined by the reactions of people. This is not a human em- enterprise. This is the kingdom of who? God. It is the eternal, miraculous kingdom and this kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and this kingdom will reach to the to the nations and the ends of the world. And my friends, that should get you out of work on Monday and on onto your job. You might be the only one. This might make you hopeful in your family. You're like me in my end of my elementary school years and going into high school. There was hardly another Christian guy in my town. There was not. At one point in time, there was not another Christian boy in my town my age. God changed that. God saved my best friend, now saved his family, and he began to do works, and I, I saw him work, but my dear friends, there are times where we can't see God working. We can't see where it's going. We feel like we're a failure, and, and then we hear the voices of the world telling us what they think of us, and it gets smudgy, and it gets blurry, and we lose sight. Stop, stop, stop. Don't listen to the narratives of the world. Listen to the narrative of the gospel, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that becomes so great. It's like a, 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 a yeast leavening a loaf and, it exp- and flour and it expands. 
And so I, I just want to say that to you this morning and ask you to think what that means for us practically. J.C. Ryle says, let us learn from this parable never to despair of any work of Christ because its first beginnings are feeble and small. Got that? Don't despair of it. And so what I think this means for us is, number one, look a little more carefully. This is the thing is that the word hid here means that God is at work often when we can't see it. And so as we were traveling over in Europe, when we flew to Catania in Sicily, in Italy, Sunday morning, we got up and we had these fruity ices with our, the, with our nephews uh, out there. And then we went off to this Italian church. It was all Italian. The pastor sent his sermon uh, to the English speakers. Uh, and then we put it through Google Translator and put it on phones and printed it out. And we went in and there was a group of uh, Christians preaching the gospel singing songs in Italian that you would know. So we just sang along as best we could. It was up on, we, they, their projector worked, you know, so they, uh, they were uh, projecting it. And we sang along and we're sitting here thinking, Europe is hollow for the gospel. But God is here. And uh, when we got back, just as a little aside, we got a note from the church to Mary Ann saying, would you write a two-week ESL curriculum teaching the Bible so we can do outreach. She goes, how do I say no to that? You put a few Christians. I mean, when we were in France, we tried to make it to an evangelical church. We couldn't get there. We, it was the, there was no evangelical church close to us. And just look at these places where there's darkness. But every once in a while, we, we were in Oxford and we were... We were uh, at a session somewhere, just standing around talking, and Marianne began talking to somebody, and this guy, we asked him, where are you? And, and he says, I'm pastoring. Where are you pastoring? I'm in um, St. Paul de Vence, France. And we said, hey, we're not going to be too far. It's like up in the hill. So we tried to get there, but our, our French was good enough to get us almost the, all the way. <laughs> but we didn't make it all the way. We, tr- we, we gave it our best shot. But here's a group of people in a little mountain village, uh, Swiss Al- or French Alps, village um, seeking to share Christ with people. And, you know, we would look at that and go, man, look how dark the world is. Friends, stop it. We got to stop it. We got to look at the message of the kingdom, the promises of the gospel, and begin to believe that our God is able and has worked. Often, it looks subtle to us, but he's affected the whole world through this motley crew that they were mocking and ridiculing. This Jesus they were affecting. So we have to look a little more carefully. Listen for the stories of redemption. Rejoice when we hear China, Russia, the Ukraine, Iran, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon. When we hear the stories, realize this kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Live a little more expectantly. Waterbrook, if I would say anything at the beginning of the fall... Let's get out of bed and believe the gospel. Let's, let's get away from the pessimism that dominates the news reel. Let's get away from the pessimism that flows from our own Christian church experiences. Because the gospel is not my limited momentary experience. Job had a rough go of it, but it wasn't the whole story. And when his Buddies came along and decided to define the story based on that experience. God pulled them up and said, let's go to school. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? And Job said, zip. I think we need to get up in the morning and say, who knows? Like Esther. Maybe God has appointed this day and me in this place for such a time as now. Isn't that great? Waterbrook, let me encourage you to be that way. Let's serve a little more faithfully. It's not our abilities, but God's grace. So if you're doing a ministry and you're just tired and you're weary, get rest. Draw near to the Lord. But my dear friends, get fresh grace. Serve a little more faithfully. Walk a little more humbly. 
My dear friends, the reason that the ministry goes this way is because it's not for our glory but his. And, you know, we want to be on the successful ship. We want to get the applause. We want somebody to say, hey, look at what you guys are doing or look at what you guys have done. My dear friends, pray that God would do ministry in such a way that he alone gets the glory. Because if it's eternal and it's lasting and it's real, it's Jesus, it's not me. It's Christ in me, the hope of glory. But it's not me. And finally, just little things. Do not, Zechariah says, about despising the day of small things. The kingdom of God is built by a lot of small things. Moments of prayer, conversations, a sentence at the right time. By the grace of God, hearing, listening to the Holy Spirit, and stepping up. That's the normal way of the kingdom. God can bring revivals. God can bring uh, cultural changes. He can work widely. But the typical way he works is through humble people who are the least, the nobodies, the most unlikely, planted and responding. Do you want to be those people? I mean, really. I'm asking you today. Do you want to be those people? You need to remind yourself today that the kingdom of God is a supernaturally invasive kingdom. But let me also take it to the serious side of it. It's also a soberingly exclusive kingdom. A sobering exclusive kingdom. And that's also what Jesus knows is going on around him. And so he tells this story in verse 22. It says, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, Will those who are being saved be few? Has that question ever gone through your mind? Is this it? Is this all there is? Is this all I'm going to see in my life? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Hear that command today. Um, You don't enter the narrow gate just haphazardly. The word strive is the word in Greek, agonizeste, which means to agonize. It's like battling. It's a word for wrestling. Fight your way into the kingdom, Jesus says. And he says, for some will not be able. And the word exousten means health or strength or capacity. Some won't have the capacity to enter the kingdom of God. Strive to enter the narrow gate, fight your way in. And so what is Jesus teaching here? He's saying, you just, just don't easily walk into the kingdom of God. You just don't haphazardly enter the kingdom of God. There is a way into the kingdom of God. And you must be intentional about knowing the way and seeking the way and following the way of Christ. And so this is what Jesus says. For I tell you, you will seek, many will seek to enter and will not be able. And you think, okay, What do you mean by that? So he explains, he says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand out and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will say to you, I don't know where you have come from. And then you'll say, we ate and drank in your presence and taught in your streets and say, I tell you, I don't know where you've come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And so when he asks the question, will there only be a few saved? And Jesus says, many will not enter. Many will not be saved, will not enter the kingdom of God. Why is it they won't enter? Number one, it's too late. You see, the master of the house has got up and closed the door. I want to just say really clearly, for those who want to have uh, a universalist position that somewhere after death, There'll be another opportunity for salvation. My dear friend, when the door closes, the door is closed. That's what he's saying. That salvation is offered to us and we ought not to be presumptuous. He says, I don't know where you've come from. That's the second reason. It'll be too late. And secondly, the master of the house won't know where you're from. Isn't it interesting in this passage that the master of the house doesn't say, I don't know who you are. He's saying that, but he doesn't say it that way. 
He says, I don't know where you've come from. I don't know where you've come. He says it twice. They'll say, but you taught in our streets and we listened to you. You were, uh, we ate in your presence. He goes, yeah, you were there, but we were not together. There's a difference between you being, it actually increases your guilt that you have heard the message of the gospel and you haven't responded. And what I believe Jesus is doing here, you'll see in the text, is he's confronting the Jewish people of his time. Jerusalem rejects him. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And they were in his presence, but what he actually says to them, here you were, and, and you were hearing me speak, and you ate. We, I went into some of your homes, and we ate, and you were there for the feeding of the 5,000, some of you. We ate together, you were in her presence, but you didn't recognize where I came from. And this is big in Jesus' teaching. Jesus has come from heaven to bring the salvation of God. And essentially on the judgment day, Jesus will say, because you didn't recognize where I came from, I'm not going to recognize where you've come from. You could have gone to church every Sunday. You could have been raised in a Christian home. You could have gone to a Christian school. You could have had every opportunity afforded to you, but you would not acknowledge me. And there are strong... You know what? If you read John's gospel, there are times where you go, wow. Um, wow. If you listen to Jesus talk to the religious leaders of his day, sometimes he just drops... <laughs> he puts the gloves on and goes. I'm going to read you a little section. And, and the reason I read this section of Scripture to you from John chapter 8 and verse 39 and following is because there's an argument that breaks out between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, and it's about where Jesus has come from and who Jesus is. And even in the middle of it, I'll, as I read it, I'll set you up for it. They, Jesus say, they're, they're talking about who's their father Jesus is claiming Abraham as their father. They're claiming Abraham as their father. Jesus tells them Satan's their father. And, and, and one of their insults to Jesus, because they probably know the story of his birth, they, they accuse Jesus of being illegitimately born. And Jesus doesn't mince words. Listen to John chapter 8, verse 39. They answered him and said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. They said to him, well, we're not born of sexual immorality. Imagine how they hung that out there for a moment. We have one Father, even God. And Jesus said, if God were your Father, you would love me. Now listen to this line. For I came from God and am, I am here. I am not of my own accord. He sent me. If you don't acknowledge that God of heaven has sent his Son in human flesh to die for sinners, he said the the, the the one who has the right to be honored, the, the king's son has come. The anointed one is here, and he is sacrificing, making his way towards Jerusalem, and you're calling him what? You want to see God ticked off? God will be patient with a whole lot of things. But on that day, Jesus continues very strongly. He says, why do you under not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. This is not how to make friends and influence others. Jesus is going for the jugular. He says, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is you're not of God. That's what, what Jesus is saying in, in Luke chapter 13. He's saying in that passage of scripture that 
I don't know where you came from. I don't know where you've come from. Why? Because you somehow didn't know where I came from. I didn't sin. I healed the sick. I fulfilled the prophecies. You studied the scriptures that talk about me, and you say, you don't know me? Don't tell me you don't know me. It's inexcusable. It's outrageous. And I just need to say, it's sobering. There will not be a second chance. The door will be closed. They heard, they ate, they participated in his ministry. Tom Schreiner says, pay attention to this. Jesus does not tell us how many will go to heaven or hell, but he clearly tells us many will go. The issue for each of us is, am I entering the narrow door? No final numbers are given here. Like the Jews, we might have great privileges as having heard the gospel from a young age. We may nevertheless fail to be saved ourselves. Life is serious. Some will suffer anguish forever. That's a heavy passage, isn't it? But that's why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Because we would all perish. We would all reject him. We would all die in our sins. And he gets it. And, and imagine the love of Jesus that he's marching towards Jerusalem basically to be abandoned by everyone and to be crucified by his own people so that he might be the savior of his people. He's got that clear. Friends, if you're asking, what am I supposed to be doing this fall? What's my ministry to be like? Remember what's at stake. The eternal welfare of souls. You see, Jesus knows who he is. Regardless of what he is, who is he? They call him, he says, they will come and say, Lord. You know who he is? He's Lord. He's, he is the master of the house. The master of the house will get up and close the door and they will say, Lord, didn't we, didn't we sit in your presence? The Lord is the one they sat in his presence. Who is that? Jesus. He's the one that's going to get up and close the door. Do you think that gives him pleasure? It gives him deep pain to go in that direction. Jesus knows that he is not only the Lord, not only the master of the house to whom it all belongs, but he is also the door. He's the door. Jesus says that again in John's gospel, I am the door of the sheep. I'm the door, enter through me. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So here I stand before you today, all of you, everyone, online and in the presence, and I'm saying today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, walk through the door, because today the, day, the door is open. Please. On that day, the day, the door will be closed. Do you understand the sobriety of all of this. Jesus knows his mission and he knows where this is all headed. I'm not going to get it out. I might do it in the outdoor service, but in this bag, I walked in this today, everybody thinks, oh, you bowl. Well, I'll pull it out just for a second. I'm a real, by the way, I'm a really good bowler. No, I'm not. Um, Anybody know what this is? So we took our family to see Top Gun. So Tom Cruise was wearing one of these when he was flying an F-14. This is my father-in-law fighter, fighter helmet. So he fought, flew test pilots, flew missions into Russia, and nobody knew he was doing that. And he, he was a Tom Cruise. So my family was visiting. We, we pulled this out. I'm going to do a little spoiler for Top Gun. Don't be worried because they tell you this at the beginning of the movie. It's the plot. So I'm only spoiling the first five minutes. Tom Cruise and a group of pilots have to go into enemy territory to destroy a uranium processing plant that is being developed to destroy the world. They know their mission. 
and they risk their lives to do it. That is nothing compared to what Jesus Christ is doing in this passage of Scripture. He knows his mission. It's not nuclear. It's eternal. He is going to destroy the one who holds the power of death. He is going to kill sin once and for all. He is on a rescue mission. And the more opposition and the more ridicule, the more keenly aware he is that the enemy is real and the the stakes are actual. It doesn't make him get dismayed. It gets him focused. And you have to be focused. Mighty friends, that's the mission we're on. Aren't you glad that Jesus continued on to Jerusalem? We need to realize how vital it is. We were in uh, Italy, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, and uh, uh, what's the name of the, where the volcano killed everybody? I'm just going to draw my blank. Oh, because Pompeii. So we're in Pompeii, 79 AD, Pompeii gets large part of Pompeii gets wiped out by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. So they've excavated it. And so we're walking through. And, and you know, as you walk in, there's a couple places. Another place we went to called uh, Hercanium. Hercanium, I can't remember how it's pronounced. But we, we went um, walking in. But when we were in Pompeii, we, we were walking along. And Marianne rounded a corner ahead of me. And I heard her. <gasps> and as I, as I, as I, as I rounded the corner behind her, she looked at me and goes, there it is. And I said, what do you mean there it is? And there was a body that had been frozen in time, if you want to say that, uh, fired into time, um, of someone who had their arm up as the volcano came. And she said, when I was 11 years old, my mom and dad went to Pompeii and they came back with a booklet. And she said, I looked through the booklet and I saw that. And she said, it seared into my memory. We walk around the corner and she goes, that's it. Right there since I was 11 years old. My dear friends, there's a day coming. And on the day it's closed, there'll be many who will say, I want to get in. And Jesus says, it'll be too late then. It'll be too late. But that's not where this story of Jesus ends. And so I want to say one more thing. The kingdom of God will be eternally glorious. That's what's driving Jesus. I mean, the negative side of the story is to save us from our sin and death and Satan and judgment, righteousness that comes against us because of our sin against God. But the other side of it is there's a glory that is yet to be revealed. Listen to the end of this passage of Scripture in verse 29 and 30. Jesus says, And people will come from east and west, north and south, reclining at the table of the kingdom of God. Will only a few be saved? No, no, no. The kingdom of God is invasive. The purpose of God is that people will come from every tribe and tongue and nation and they will come and and you say you ate at my presence then. That's nothing like when eating in my presence on that day and that feast. Marianne and I uh, were in Menton because I wanted to go to Menton uh, where Spurgeon went and and died. And uh, Spurgeon said that the best... And, and, you know, there, we got to go to, there was a, there's a big olive grove. We saw a 2,000-year-old olive tree. But there's a big olive grove on the, on the hill where Spurgeon would go and pray. And there's another garden up above where he met George Mueller and his wife. He met Hudson Taylor there. And, um, but Spurgeon said the best place to see Menton was on the east side of Menton, if you're facing it. Uh, on the east side, just near the Italian border. You can walk, you basically can see Italy from there. And he says, get out on the, on the break wall. So we went out on the break wall. And it was, um, it's holidays there. I think Italy gets like a month of holidays, like officially. And so there are a lot of Italians in Menton when we were there. And so we're on the break wall looking back. And you can see the old buildings and the sun against it. And the shoreline is full of families. 
and there's young people playing beach volleyball, and the cafes, the patios, there's music coming from. It's just sweet. And you're looking at it going, isn't this marvelous? Just a little tranquil moment. We walked along. We met Felipe, a retired French police investigator, stood there and listened to music with him and talked with him, saw him the next night with his daughter at a restaurant, Trattoria, and walked along thinking, it's this little moment. This is when you want all your friends, all your family, your whole church to be with you right now. Go look at this. Just get a little taste of this. Jesus knows what's coming. Let me, let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 25. Jesus knows the word of God because he is the word of God. But in Isaiah 25, 6 and 9, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken it will be said on this day behold this is our God we have waited for him that he might save us this is the Lord we have waited for him let us be glad and rejoice in salvation do you know what we're going to be doing on that day weeping and laughing (laughs) rejoicing and sorrowing and having our tears wiped away because death is gone. Sin is defeated. The enemy is destroyed. The whole conversation is settled. And we will eat and feast like we've never. You see, Jesus knows that. And he's willing to go to the cross so that you can know that too. My goal today was to take some of the bugs off your windshield. Because I know some of you are tired. And I know some of you are discouraged. And I know some of you are going, will there only be a few saved? That's how you feel. Now there'll be many saved. But my dear friends, let's follow Jesus. He went all the way to the cross. Let's follow in his steps, trusting in him believing that he will keep his word. Let's ask him, build your kingdom. Build your kingdom, Jesus. God's people said, amen. Let's pray together. So God, as the worship team is coming up to lead us in a song that expresses our desire, we just, we can't find the words and we, we are limited in our abilities, but it is easy for me, oh God, to be discouraged. It's easy for me to think how. It's easy to look at labors in our families and our churches and with our friends and our neighborhoods and our schools and just think why does it seem so hard oh God give us a vision of the kingdom of God make your kingdom come I pray dear God would you encourage Waterbrook would you encourage everyone here today would you save would you set free would you bless us we ask in Jesus name amen Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.